electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, planes, trains, and broadband, Washington's road ahead on fixing roads. Inside the bipartisan negotiations with Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. If we can't come together on infrastructure, I'm not sure where we're ever going to find uh, common ground. And it's great that we got so much support for this middle ground proposal. And Nevada Congresswoman Susie Lee. This is the biggest investment in infrastructure that we've ever seen. And so clearly it's complicated, taking some time. Less work, it's working. The rise of the four day week with Joe Pinsker of The Atlantic. These are companies that have taken 40 hours and shaved it down to 32 hours over the course of four days and not reduced pay. Those stories, plus the rest of the news that got us talking, like Taylor Swift, Lady Gaga, and Bill Ackman, headlining the biggest SPAC deal ever. I don't know if we should use the phrase financial engineering, but there's a financial engineering element. It's Monday, June 21st, 2021. Summer is officially here, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Mike Santoli. Joe is off today. Guys, welcome. It's good to see everybody this morning. The Dow tumbled by 533 points on Friday, finished the week 3.5% lower, and that came after. St. Louis Fed President Jim Boulder told us right here on Squawk Box that it was natural for the Fed to tilt a little hawkish. We were expecting a good year, uh, a good reopening, but this is a, a bigger year than we were expecting, um, more inflation than we were expecting. And I think it's natural that we've uh, tilted a little bit more hawkish here uh, to contain inflationary pressures. Probably didn't say anything, guys, um, that you wouldn't have known by just looking at the dots themselves. He's definitely somebody who was more hawkish. He pointed out that he was one of the ones who was looking for a rate hike next year. He was one of those dots. Um, But the market's interpretation of this was pretty interesting. It did come on a quadruple expiration, um, and that's why you saw a lot of kind of some of the chaos that really played out. Maybe what's really interesting is taking a look at what's kind of playing out with Treasury yields this morning as well. This is key. The 30-year earlier fell below 2%. That's the first time that that's happened since February. Um, You're looking right now at sitting at 2.032%, but you have seen kind of a flattening of the yield curve. 10-year is back down at 1.4 and change, 1.436. In fact, it fell even lower than that this morning, too. Two-year, meantime, is sitting at 0.26%. And, and Mike, part of what we're seeing here is some panic as there was a big sell-off in Asia overnight. Right, so Asia kind of had to catch down to the Dow's move on Friday. And, you know, it didn't really feed through to to Europe. It's unclear if that's going to really just keep uh, spiraling. I think really uh, what what Jim Bullard said here on Friday more just pushed the market in the direction it was already unwillingly going in the prior two days, which is to say we weren't quite prepared. Everybody was crowded into the precise wrong trades, which was the inflation uh, assets. And it's this unwind continued uh, through Friday. The other thing to keep in mind is S&P 
up 12 or 11 percent year to date. Right. Bonds are still down. If you had a portfolio, the direction of rebalancing goes toward bonds as we get to the halfway point of the year. So when we say people are underinvested in longer term bonds, this is what it looks like when you get a little bit of a shock from the incremental moves from the Fed. Yeah, things move a little quickly at that point. It was yeah. interesting to watch some of these yields today. We should point out the Dow at this point is now about 5 percent off of its all time high. The S&P is only about 2 percent off its all time high. And then the Nasdaq is only by about one and a quarter percent. Crypto prices are plunging right now as well. Uh, take a look at that board. Bitcoin down 6%. Many Bitcoin mines in Sichuan were shuttered yesterday after authorities in the southwestern Chinese province ordered a halt to crypto mining. Local reports say more than 90% of China's Bitcoin mining capacity is estimated to be shut down. Meantime, China's Ag Bank is reportedly planning to block uh, crypto trading. So this has been a theme for a while, of course. Uh, uh, China, Chinese authorities not being happy with, uh, you know, reliance on Bitcoin and the use of Bitcoin. On the other hand, uh, it's a vulnerable market, dollar rallying, it's way off the highs. So it's unclear if this is, you know, if this is really about supply demand or, uh, you know, delegitimization of Bitcoin or it's just a vulnerable chart. Hey, Andrew, that's a, that's a kind of a sharp turnaround from what we had seen before. You know, there, were, there was this talk that maybe China liked seeing Bitcoin because they thought it could kind of rattle the United States and, and the dollar's supremacy on this. Maybe, maybe not the case at this point. I don't know. I think we're just in a, I mean, the question that I have about Bitcoin is whether what happens with the Fed, is it really going to take Bitcoin down? Is it separated? Is it not? I'm, I'm, I think it's hard. It's, I think it's, I mean, look, it does, it feels correlated to the market to some degree. So it doesn't seem like a fully uncorrelated asset. But again, you have this sort of belief system and there are a lot of people out there that are quote unquote believers. So I, I put my hands up because I have, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> no, there's, there's no right or wrong price for it in the short term, right? I mean, you can, you're going to have a lot of believers. Um, but, you know, you also had a lot of people who were riding a market that was melting up for, you know, a few months and, and it's hot money on the way out as well. Right. The question that I've always had about this is just how much leverage there is yeah. in the Bitcoin ecosystem. And, and I think that will actually I mean, if and when we find out there was a lot of leverage used, that to me could represent a leg. If, if you're looking on the negative side, the leg down, the question, of course, is how much support there is when, when things come down to these rates. Do people say, OK, I don't know. I don't know. I've talked to people who think that at twenty eight thousand, twenty eight thousand dollars, that's like a screaming buy. Is it a screaming buy? I don't know. Yeah. Usually you only know how much leverage is there after the, the <laughs> price declines happen and people right. get trapped. Although, you know, you hear a lot of folks also pointing out this Bitcoin was cut in half and it didn't seem systemic. It didn't really cause, you know, any kind of widespread spillover in rest right. other asset markets. So we'll see. Bill Ackman's SPAC, the biggest SPAC in history, signing a deal to buy 10 percent of Universal Music Group for about $4 billion, the deal value in the company at more than $40 billion, 35 billion euros. Francis Vivendi is spinning off UMG, which will complete that, that planned listing in late September on the Euronext Amsterdam Exchange. Ackman's Pershing Square Tontine Holdings, uh, the Tontonites out there, said it would uh, distribute UMG shares to its shareholders after the completion of that listing. Tontine will continue to exist uh, as a Remain Co. This after uh, the transaction, they'll still have access to $2.9 billion in cash, and they intend to pursue another business combination with an existing company. So uh, those shareholders are going to get, uh, of Tontine, get effectively two bites at the apple, then a potential 
third bite at the apple as well. Tontine became the biggest ever SPAC last summer when it raised $4 billion in an IPO with Ackman's firm committing a minimum of an additional $1 billion. UMG is the parent company of dozens of music labels representing thousands of artists, including Taylor Swift, Bob Dylan, Justin Bieber, U2, Coldplay, Elton John, Billy Joel, Otis Redding, and Adele. And Mike, one of the, one of the other sort of interesting features of this SPAC, and I know this one's much more complicated than the typical effectively take a private company public. And this is, this is obviously very different because effectively they're taking a, a, a subunit of a company that was going to go public and effectively buying in early at a set price. We'll see whether that price is as advantageous as Bill Ackman uh, believes it to be. There's some tax advantages to doing it that way. But, you know, we've critiqued a lot of these SPACs over the years because of the way sponsors get warrants and promotes uh, in these in these deals. One of the things that was fascinating to read in this is that Bill Ackman effectively loses the warrants in this transaction when it comes to UMG. So there are no warrants uh, associated with this. So uh, effectively, when you talk about alignment, they are making, that is Pershing Square, his fund, making an investment in this along with the the public shareholders of Tontine. And that's it. You're not getting anything else. Uh, which is also sort of a fascinating feature of this. Uh, It'll be interesting to see that there are still warrants that will be included with whatever the second transaction uh, turns out to be. Um, But as we've been trying to sort through what is uh, probably also the most complicated SPAC in history, uh, there's some interesting features of it. Yeah, there's parts of it that seem, you know, kind of better mousetrap, just sort of addressing some of the critiques of the SPAC structure. It also feels a little more private equity-ish, right? You're taking a, yep. a division of a large mature company, buying it. But this is just an accelerated version of that because it's going to be, you know, in public hands uh, before too long. In a way, it's almost like a pipe investment. Yeah, yeah, like a, like a late stage thing. Yeah. In a late stage pipe investment in something that's about to go public. Right. Uh, it creates a floor for the Vivendi shareholder of sorts because it sort of establishes a valuation. And we'll see what the public thinks of that valuation uh, w- when those shares go public. Yeah. For sure. What's the tax advantage? I don't, I don't know that I understand entirely how that works. If you were a shareholder of Vivendi and you were to get um, shares of UMG, you will ultimately pay taxes on those because those are being dividended out to you effectively. Mm-hmm. So, this, so, so it's not structured as a tax-free spinoff, in other words. It's not structured as a tax-free spinoff, exactly. Yeah. So if you own shares of Vivendi, these shares, I shouldn't say it's a spinoff, they, they're effectively dividended out to you, you'll pay taxes on those. Effectively, if you're, by buying share, if you own shares in Tontine, you are getting them effectively without that, that, that tax hit. So yeah. there is also, I, I don't know if we should use the phrase financial engineering, but there's a financial engineering element uh, to, what, to, to, to this transaction. Yeah, yeah. I, you can use financial engineering. It doesn't always have to be a pejorative. <laughs> Sometimes it, uh, it works. A Royal Caribbean cruise ship departing from Miami on a test cruise yesterday. Hundreds of passengers, including Royal Caribbean employees, are participating in the simulated voyage that's being done to test health and safety protocols. Now, last week, a federal judge sided with the state of Florida in its lawsuit, challenging the CDC order that shut down the cruise industry during the pandemic. The judge's decision makes the CDC's rules on Florida-based ships merely guidelines, folks. So I think uh, we're going to be seeing a lot more cruises set sail very, very soon, and um, uh, vaccine or not. Yeah, looks like it. Well, 
It's getting tougher maybe to fly, though. American Airlines said it canceled hundreds of flights over the weekend because of staffing shortages, maintenance, and other issues. It canceled 180 flights yesterday, or about 6% of its mainline schedule, and 4% on Saturday. A company list viewed by CNBC showed about half of yesterday's cancellations were due to unavailable flight crews. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. That's not something, we, when you talk about shortages, you're talking about worker shortages everywhere, but when it's actually shutting down some of these flights, meaning yeah. that they can't travel, um, I don't know how the Fed works that into their thinking with these things. Well, interestingly, too. I think some people commenting on the Fed said the labor market is behaving tighter than you would think you would at think. this point. Yeah. And that, in theory, could kind of make them more confident of their growth goals, but also uh, maybe the inflation side is more relevant then. Right. And wages. And, and, I mean, and Becky, oh, just uh, Becky has one other point, because this goes to what Doug Parker was arguing during the pandemic, by the way, against me on the other side of this debate about the government... Uh, the U.S. government, therefore, supporting the airlines. And one of the things that the airlines uh, and Sarah Nelson, uh, who represents um, the, the flight attendants, would say is we need to keep the not only do we need to keep the planes in the, in the sky, we needed to keep all the employees on board so that the second the economy and uh, the health restrictions were open, people could actually fly, that we could actually get everybody in the sky, that if we furlough people, if we don't have all the people on board, they won't be ready to go. And I think you actually are seeing some of that um, and uh, I'm not I'm not willing to eat crow just yet on, on some of uh, my, my views about the bailouts. But th that was the issue. And to some degree, you're seeing some of it come true. We'll have to continue to watch. Is it just American? Or is this affecting all of the airlines at this point? Or were others able to do things that, that kept people around? I, I mean, I think that's part of the question, too. I haven't heard this at other airlines yet. Not to mean that it won't happen. Um, but that would be some of it's a standard Some of it's stick. a scheduling issue potentially overscheduling or, or, or effectively overcommitting, if you will, right. relative, relative, to, uh, relative to staffing. That, that seems to be part of it yeah, as well. That could be part of the question. Next on Squawk Pod, finding common ground. Get it? America's roads, bridges, and much more need fixing. But who will pay for it all? We'll ask Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. I think uh, we can really do this without raising a lot of taxes. You know, there's going to be pushback from both sides about raising taxes. I'm not sure that's what America wants. Republican Governor Hogan and Democratic Congresswoman Susie Lee, right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Mike Santoli. Joe is off today. 21 senators and the Problem Solvers Caucus in the House have signaled bipartisan support for an infrastructure framework 
Following that, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, business roundtables and no labels have come together to launch a campaign in support of a two-party deal. A statement signed by more than 180 business, civic, labor and military leaders reads in part, President Biden has said America has a once-in-a-generation chance to invest in our country and our infrastructure. He said he wants a bipartisan deal because there is no such thing as Republican bridges, Democratic airports, Republican hospitals, or a Democratic power grid. We agree with the president. Joining us right now with more on the bipartisan efforts on infrastructure is Republican Governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, and Democratic Congresswoman Susie Lee of Nevada. And Governor, we'll start with you. Um, there is the feeling that there is some, some sort of a support, a consensus coming together, but we're still a little uh, shy of the details of how exactly this would work and, and, and making sure that everybody would agree once you get that hammered out. How do you think things are shaping up? How? Um, optimistic are you that there will be a bipartisan deal? Well, I think we're at a really good place. Uh, you know, this is something that Democrats and Republicans have agreed that uh, rebuilding America's infrastructure is critically important. It's an issue that I uh, got all 50 governors to agree on a proposal after spending a year-long initiative. And there's a great movement in the House and the Senate and at the White House. Um, I think it's a very important week for the president. Um, I, you know, I, I want to th uh, take my hat off to all of the folks on both sides of the aisle who have been working together. Uh, it's not easy, but, you know, Republicans were at one end and the Democratic proposal was at the other end. Uh, I'm the chair of No Labels. Uh, you know, I brought together a group of bipartisan governors, senators and congressmen to talk about this. And they've been working really hard. And we're now at a midpoint that it sounds like we may get the president on board. And it's what he promised to do. You know, he said he really wanted to work together in a bipartisan way. This is this is our chance to do it. If we can't come together on infrastructure, I'm not sure where we're ever going to find uh, common ground. And it's great that we got so much support for this middle ground proposal. Representative Lee, you've been in the trenches trying to, to work this out and, and make some sort of a deal happen. Can you just give us the latest? I know not all the details are there yet, but what would this uh, plan look like if it were bipartisan? Well, the latest has been that we've now seen movement on the Senate side that roughly mirrors a lot of what we uh, negotiated in the Problem Solvers Caucus in the House. Uh, the Problem Solvers Caucus is 29 Democrats, 29 Republicans. We, um, a couple weeks ago, put forward our proposal building bridges, about $1.25 trillion. Uh, we're now seeing movement in the Senate with 21 uh, senators, 10 Democrats, 11 Republicans approximately a trillion dollar package. Uh, so now we're seeing some movement in the Senate. So making us optimistic that we can get a bipartisan deal on this package. Representative Lee, what have you heard from, from the leadership, both in the House and in the Senate? Because I think that's been a big question too. Um, every time you have more Republicans who come on board, there's the threat that you'll lose some of the progressive Democrats. Where, where does the leadership stand? Listen, I, I think that, um, in this package, there's nothing more bipartisan than infrastructure. And I think we can all agree uh, we have crumbling roads and bridges across this country, our, waterway, our waterways, our ports. Uh, there's definitely um, a consensus that we need to invest in infrastructure. And certainly a lot of this is going to be the devils in the details, especially in the pay right. force. You know, we made a concerted effort to first talk about the size, then look at the scope. That's exactly what we're doing. This is very complicated, but I think that we're seeing movement and there's certainly an appetite to get something done. 
the pay-fors have to be the trickiest part of all of this. Is it going to come, you think, with, with taxes being raised? Because that's been a sticking point for uh, the, at least the Republican leadership. Yeah, I mean, first of all, there's a slew of proposals on the pay-fors. I think the most important is closing the tax gap uh, in this and also looking at some partnerships, public-private partnerships. So obviously this is going to be the, the big negotiating part of this package is how we pay for all of this. But what we're seeing in the package that came out of the Senate is $579 billion dollars of new spending, I think that's a sign that we're moving in the right direction. Governor Hogan, how important is this for Maryland? What do, what do you need in terms of infrastructure right now in your state? Well, I would say all governors on both sides of the aisle uh, really believe this is a top priority, and we're <clears throat> pleased that we're finally making progress. This really isn't a Republican or Democratic issue. And I think the leadership uh, on both sides, uh, you know, the Republicans did, didn't want to go big enough. The Democrats wanted to go too big to include a lot of things that had nothing to do with infrastructure. And I take my hat off to our group, the, the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is part of No Labels, and the group of uh, the G20 group of uh, bipartisan senators in the Senate for getting us where we are. And we had very encouraging news out of the White House, <clears throat> the president sounding like he does want to continue on in a bipartisan way. It means uh, it means a lot. It means jobs as we're coming out of this pandemic, trying to grow our economy and put people to work. And it's critically important. Uh, it also, I think, is uh, is the, the administration's chance to show uh, that they are willing to work in a bipartisan way, as as, as Joe Biden ran on and, and talked about in his inauguration. Representative Lee, I'll ask one more time, just in terms of what you hear from the leadership, what has Nancy Pelosi signaled, what has Schumer signaled, or are they waiting to see what President Biden signals first? And definitely, you know, we're expecting to hear back from the White House today on this proposal of the Senate. Um, I think that that's going to be an indication of where we're heading. I mean, I, I know that there's uh, definitely an appetite to get this done on a bipartisan manner this part of the package, obviously looking to reconciliation uh, as well. And listen, this is the biggest investment in infrastructure that we've ever seen. And so clearly it's complicated, taking some time. I think that uh, most importantly, the leadership wants us to get a package done. And, uh, and so I'm looking forward to hearing what the White House has to say today in response to the Senate's plan. If the White House scuttles at this point, is that is that it? Is that game over? Uh, listen, I, I don't think the White House is going to scuttle it. I definitely they've been in contact with all of us, both on the House side and the Senate side, as we've walked through these steps and trying to get to this package. Um, you know, the president has made it clear he does not want to raise taxes on individuals earning under four hundred thousand dollars. Uh, and obviously we have to there's going to be some serious negotiations um, and they take time. And I think we need to look at all of this in a holistic uh, manner. Um, and so I think that we're going to see this step by step moving forward. That, that, that would preclude if you don't want to raise taxes on anyone under making under four hundred thousand dollars, that would preclude raising the gas tax, which is something that some Democratic senators have kind of been in favor of, too. Correct. Yes. I, you know, I, I think the uh, president has been very clear that he does not want to raise taxes on those making under four hundred thousand dollars. The gas tax certainly would be that. And again, I think we have to look at all these pay fors as a package. Uh, you can't look at one of them in a vacuum. And so uh, and again, this is going to be 
the hardest part of these negotiations is how we pay for this. Governor, are there any taxes or any pay-fors that you would be opposed to, or is it just more important for you to, to see some sort of deal come together and some sort of infrastructure spending get put into place? Well, as uh, Representative Lee said, reaching uh, the spending number it was, the, was a, the big first step to go from $2.3 trillion down to $1 trillion. So that's, a, that's the, 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 where all the effort has been. Uh, but I think uh, we can really do this without uh, raising a lot of taxes. And the, the met their pro different proposals from the House uh, problem solvers and from some of the senators, you know, there's there's going to be pushback from both sides about raising taxes. I'm not sure that's what America wants. Uh, but uh, the private sector, uh, public private partnerships is a big part of it. Unspent um, monies on other things and shifting around some priorities and where we're spending money now can get us pretty close. And you know, we've got to figure out the last uh, the last few miles to go uh, on how we're going to come up with the pay force. Clever. Last few miles for the infrastructure bill. Governor, Representative, want to thank you both for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod Long Weekends Forever, The Atlantic's Joe Pinsker on companies that are successfully experimenting with a four-day work week. My argument is much more about giving workers more time outside of work to do things that they care about, to rest from work so that they return more focused. Um, a three-day weekend in that context seems to really help rejuvenate people a lot more. Same pay, same work, more weekend right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin, and Mike Santoli is here at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square with me today. Joe's off, uh, but he'll be back tomorrow. As COVID cases drop around the U.S. and employers welcome back workers to the office, our next guest is proposing a major shift to the work week as we know it. I want to welcome Joe Pinsker, a staff writer with The Atlantic, has a fascinating piece out titled Kill the Five-Day Workweek. Uh, Joe, it, it, I know that there's, I, I don't want to say the headline had a clickbait element to it, but I clicked and I definitely, I clicked many times. I actually sent it to many friends because it's fascinating. You think that we are moving potentially towards a four-day workweek. Yeah, I think this is a moment when a ton of assumptions about work are just getting totally upended. And as I was looking at this and thinking about this more and talking to companies, and workers, I think it's time to also start instead of in, in addition to just revisiting assumptions about physical work and how much people should be paid. And I think we should start looking at what the actual work day looks like, what people spend time doing at work. And that leads us to thinking about how we might be able to shorten the work week. So the, the real question, though, is we have I think there's two camps in America right now. Uh, there's one camp that says, forget about hybrid. We're going five days we want you back in the office all the time. Even when they say we want to be hybrid, the true view is we want to be all the time. And then there's another view, probably represented by Silicon Valley and some of the younger companies in this country that are embracing hybrid and may very well embrace this four-day work week that you're talking about. You've, you've looked at some of the companies even 
that have had these shorter work weeks and claim they have much higher productivity. Yeah, I mean, I, the companies that have implemented this have run the gamut, and they've the they generally uh, they some a lot of them are knowledge work companies. They're tech companies. They're small marketing firms, but they also are other types of companies. I, I mean, they're nursing homes that have done this. Uh, I also spoke to a manufacturing company. I think there are all sorts of different industries in which it's possible for people to get the same amount of work done in less time. Um, I mean, sort of the like I mentioned this manufacturing example, it's not just about people typing on computers. I spoke to the CEO of this company that makes metal truck bed covers in central Pennsylvania. And last year when they were trying to hire a bunch more people, they, they shaved five hours off their 40 hour week for their factory team. And they ended up finding that people were just able to get their jobs done more quickly. They were shedding their least productive hours. In addition to that, um, people were sort of looking up and down the line in front of them seeing how they could speed things along. A lot of these companies had given their employees an actual real reason to start working more efficiently and more quickly, uh, which sort of led to a win for everybody. But, but just to put a fine point on it, total hours over the course of the four-day work week, if you will, were what compared to the five-day work week? I mean, are we, are we taking the eight hours and, and pushing them out to 10 or 12 on the four days? Right, this is a point worth clarifying. These are companies that have taken 40 hours and shaved it down to 32 hours over the course of four days and not reduced pay. So this is a really key idea. I think there are companies that have comp compressed uh, you know, 40 hours into four days. They talk about their own sorts of productivity benefits. This is great. But my argument is much more about giving workers more time outside of work to do things that they care about, to rest from work so that they return more focused. Um, a three-day weekend in that context seems to really help rejuvenate people a lot more. What is your sense of the in-office versus work-from-home part of this equation, which is to say, okay, let's assume we, we shrink down to four day, a four-day work week. Um, we can't do that, by the way, on Squawk Box, unfortunately, because uh, the markets are open five days a week. But you, you squeeze down to four days. Does it matter whether you're in the office or working from home? It's a good question. I think it's one that individual companies are going to have to answer themselves. But I think it speaks to a larger point here about how managers tend to like uh, having people, having their people around them so that they can sort of manage them uh, in person. And, and, and I think a lot at a lot of companies, people don't entirely trust their employees to get stuff done. Switching to a four day work week is an act is a huge trust fall. You have to trust that your workers are going to uh, get their stuff done in less time and are going to be more efficient. And I think that this works in tandem with the remote work, hybrid work question, because I, I don't think it's safe to say that productivity is purely a function of how much time you spend in the office surveilled by your manager. I think um, that, that you can get a lot done uh, when, when that's not the case. Hey, Joe, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. You know, I, I do think there's this paternalistic attitude. They feel like if they're not watching you, you're not doing it. And if you're not having these silly meetings, then uh, not enough is getting accomplished. But if you really can turn that productivity up, like, like in a manufacturing site, and, and, and get things done faster, I think the bigger question is, who gets the, the gains of that productivity increase? Does it go back to the company? Does it go to the worker to say, OK, if you can get your work done faster, you can get out of here earlier? I mean, it's a huge question, especially when productivity gains have been something we, that have kind of confounded us uh, for a number of years at this point. 
Yeah, I think the key in a lot of these circumstances is that by getting the same amount done in less time, uh, you're, you're basically giving workers a reason to buy into this. I mean, one of the companies that I talked to, sort of the prototypical example, uh, it's this company called Perpetual Guardian in New Zealand. Their, uh, their CEO came to uh, their employees and said, look, if you can get your, done, your work done in less time, I'll give you an extra day off. So it's sort of, uh, it's, it's a little bit of uh, giving people a stake in, in what they're doing. And if you actually give them a reason to do that, they're going to be on Facebook less. They're going to be scheduling doctor's appointments during the day less. There's sort of all these different things that eat into the workday that people start doing less because they have a real reason to get their jobs done more quickly so that they go so that later on they have more time to take care of the stuff they need to do and more importantly, the stuff they want to do. Okay. Uh, I want to thank you. Appreciate it. Great to yeah, see you this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. Mike, I want to thank you for being with us several days this week and last. Here. It's been great to see, see you. See And that's the podcast for today. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, Andrew Ross Sorkin, Taylor Swift, Bob Dylan, Justin Bieber, YouTube, Coldplay, Elton John, Billy Joel, Otis Redding, and Adele. Oh, maybe not. But catch Joe, Becky, and Andrew on CNBC at 6 Eastern or listen and follow Squawk Pod. And if you do, we'll meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. And that's it. You're not getting anything else. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.